Some headlines grab us and our attention more than others. Considering new evidence, death row inmate found not guilty of charges after 30 years in prison. Or a president commutes sentence of a man convicted of treason. You and I have, because we're created in the image of God, a knee-jerk reaction to injustice. When we hear stories of injustice, a man on death row for 30 years, and then we hear that the state's attorney's office who had brought the charges originally had withheld evidence in the case, and thus he was wrongly or she was wrongly convicted. There's something in us that irritates us, that concerns us. Or, when someone has hurt us or our family and gets away with it, without punishment, without recourse, without even an apology. Something in us wells up in frustration and anger, injustice, the desire for justice, the desire for the wrong to be made right, and the wrong to be exposed. We come to a passage in the Bible, which some have described as the greatest miscarriage of justice in the history of humanity. An innocent man who had done nothing that deserved death is executed as a state criminal and a terrorist is set free. We come this morning to sacred ground. As Luke slows down the narrative and takes us into these inner rooms, what we've titled the trial of Christ really becomes, as we'll see, the trial of humanity. And our, our passage falls within the final hours of Jesus' ministry. There's not days, there's not weeks, there's not months, there is hours before He's executed. He's been betrayed by one of His own, Denied three times by his best disciple. Arrested under the cover of darkness. And has been abandoned by everyone who called him a friend. The crowds that sang Hosanna earlier in the week cry out, crucify him, crucify him. 
It truly was, as Jesus said, an hour of darkness. The enemy had Jesus in his grasps. Satan was ready to bruise the heel of his eternal foe. But what to our eyes and to the observers there that day seemed to be evil's greatest victory, evil's greatest triumph will turn out to be the victor's crown. As death and sin and Satan are finally and fully destroyed. Friends, with this in mind, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 66. Perhaps you're here this morning, you're not accustomed to looking at a Bible. Let me just encourage you to grab one of the black pew Bibles in front of you that are, that are in that little case there. Grab it, turn to page 883, and look for the little small number 66. It's tiny, I know it's hard to see. It's down at the bottom of the page. We're going to begin there and we're going to work through a number of verses. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 66. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. And they led Jesus away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? He said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, You've said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether this man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at length, but Jesus made no answer. The chief priest and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this they had been in enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. 
I therefore punish and release him. But they cried out all the more together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city, and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. And he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they had asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Friends, this morning we'll stop there. If we were to summarize what we've just read, we could summarize in this way. Jesus Christ, the divine Son of Man, though innocent and undeserving of death, was condemned to die in your place. The one who deserved death. So that you and I might have freedom and forgiveness through His atoning work. We see a number of themes in this text and the prominent one that Luke, I think, has in our, in our eyes is that Jesus was innocent but that he died in the place of the guilty. And so this morning, our time is going to be focused on, I hope, leading us to sorrow over our sin, to understand that we are the reason this scene happens, historically in the life of Jesus. And also to lead us in joy over Jesus' willingness to endure this for us. To bring us to a place where we can confess, in my place, condemned he stood. That is the hope of the Christian gospel this morning. That Jesus stands condemned, though innocent and undeserving of death, he stands condemned for you and for me. And so Luke records these final hours of Jesus' earthly ministry And in doing so, he spares no details as he writes to his friend Theophilus to give him an orderly account and to give him assurance of the things that he's come to know and to believe. Our text can easily be divided into really two main ideas this morning, or two main points. First, we see in verses 66 through chapter 12, or excuse me, chapter 23, verse 12, we see the trial of Jesus. Jesus is, is put on trial. We, he goes before three people. He goes before first the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders. Then he goes before Pilate, the, the Roman prefect there in, in that region. And then lastly, we saw that he went before Herod, which would have been a, the governor of that particular region, a Jewish leader there on behalf of Rome. And then at the end of the trial, beginning in verse 13, we find the verdict. We find Pilate giving his verdict. And you and I might might really think, why is this so important? Just refer back to our confession. Notice that in 
that confession that we have from 381 that he was sentenced to die under Pontius Pilate. That this historically happened. This is real. This Jesus didn't die just spiritually, but physically under the condemnation of sinful men and women. So let's consider first the trial of Jesus. I just want you to notice a number of things as we walk through this trial. First, Jesus is tried by the Sanhedrin. There, if you have your Bibles open in verses 66 through 71, we are told that Jesus is led that next day towards the, in the early morning hours to the convening of the religious establishment in Israel. They meet together there in Jerusalem, and of course, it's the Passover. And so all the Jews have assembled here in Jerusalem from around the known world in order to participate in this festival. And so the Sanhedrin comes together and they begin to question Jesus. They begin to examine Jesus. And the heart of their examination is this question, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Messiah is a Hebrew word. Christ is a Greek word. Essentially means the anointed one. The son of David who is to come to rule and reign over God's people. Are you the Messiah? And so in verse 67, rather, they ask him, if you're the Christ, tell us. Now, of course, Jesus has been telling people for three years about who he is and revealing his identity. But the religious leaders, as we've seen in Luke's gospel, have time and time again rejected any information. They, they don't want to listen to Jesus. They don't want to hear, they don't want to consider the evidence. And so Jesus here refuses to answer. Notice what he says. If I tell you, you will not believe. Verse 68. And if I ask you some questions and ter- you know, kind of follow up with you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And so what Jesus does here is he doesn't answer their question directly, but indirectly answers the question. He says, you want to call me the Son of God, but I am the Son of Man. In other words, Jesus here is using a a very familiar passage from Daniel chapter 7 that those religious leaders in that room would have heard and their ears would have instantly tingled. They would have instantly got excited because that text refers to one who would come and rule and reign. And so while Jesus here seems to be evading them, he is directly answering their question. That Jesus is the divine Son of Man and Son of God who will reign at power and glory. Jesus is making clear even here, the cross is hours away. He will die. But Jesus knows that the resurrection is coming. That death will not be the end of the line for Him. But that He will raise again. And so He goes with confidence with this. Again, they reiterate are you then saying that you're the son of god and then in verse 70 he responds you say that i am now in english that sounds sort of evasive or elusive but really what it means is you said it 
not me. It's a similar idiom, what we use. You said it, not me. In other words, Jesus wants them to own their confession. You're saying that I'm the Son of Man. You said it, not me. In other words, He's making sure that they understand their moral culpability in this whole situation. They think they're trying just a man. But they are in fact trying the Son of Man, the Son of God, who will come in glory and power. Let me just imagine for a moment. They're questioning the one man who will stand in judgment over them. They think they're in control of this situation. Jesus is trying to get them to understand, you're not in control, I'm in control. This is what Psalm 110 says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You heard that from Hebrews chapter 1. What we see happening and transpiring in this text is exactly that point. Jesus is giving them a master lesson on who's really in control. And you might say, well, where do you get that clue? Well, that's how Luke ends this entire section in verse 25. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. See, Luke is subtly letting us know that as he'll make explicit in the book of Acts, that Jesus was delivered up by the defined foreknowledge and forepurpose of God. In other words, Jesus was predestined to die on Calvary's cross. Jesus is affirming here in our text that he is in control, not the Sanhedrin. Well, for them, they've heard enough. They have enough. They understand what Jesus is saying, that he is confessing himself to be both God and Messiah. And so they take him to Pilate. Pilate, of course, was the Roman prefect. He was the one that was in charge. The Jews had no authority to execute anyone. They couldn't kill Jesus if they wanted to. They would have been in prison themselves. And so they trump up charges with Pilate, and they give Pilate exactly what Pilate wants to hear. Look at them with me there in verses 1 through 5. They go to him and say, this man is misleading our nation, verse 2, and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. He's misleading the nation. Notice the false accusations that they level against Jesus. And then that second one, the outright lie that they tell that Jesus is teaching that you shouldn't pay your taxes. Friends, if you've been with us the last several weeks, didn't Jesus have a whole teaching about give unto Caesar the things that are the Caesars and the things that are God give to, right? They're lying. They are lying. Friend, this is the enemy at his best. Satan only has one trick in his, in his little bag of tricks, and it is a lie. He is a liar, the Bible says. He's been a liar since the beginning. Lies have their origination in the chief liar. And we see the lies that are being perpetuated against our Savior ultimately come from his great adversary. Pilate, of course, doesn't deal with the taxes. Of course, he has people all the time that are complaining about taxes. What leader doesn't hear, what politician doesn't hear from their constituents that their taxes are too high? He doesn't deal with that at all. What does he deal with? 
Oh, so you're a king? Oh, do tell. I'm sure Caesar wants to hear about this. Are you king of the Jews, he says? And again, Jesus responds by saying that same idiom, hey, you said it, not me. You said it, not me. In other words, Jesus is making explicitly clear that he has no time to convince people that don't want to be convinced about who he is. He knows Pilate's heart. Pilate is about to deliver him up, though Pilate knows he's innocent. Notice here how often this phrase is repeated throughout this section, beginning in verse 4. I have found no guilt in this man. Pilate knew he was innocent. Yet Pilate is the one who signed on the dotted line for the execution order. Pilate, you are wrong. Do you not think Jesus knew Pilate's heart? Do you not know that he was just throwing his pearls to pigs? And so he's tried by Pilate. Friend, this was predicted long ago through the prophets. In Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, the, against his Messiah. Friend, we see this unfolding in the trial of Christ. Again, the, the religious leaders continue to press in and press in. And then, like any good politician, what does he do? He finds a scapegoat. Oh, he's a Galilean? Oh, he's not even under my jurisdiction. Actually, Herod should deal with it. And so he passes the buck, right? We see that every day in Washington, D.C. Right? Politicians passing the buck. Oh, it wasn't me. It was some, you know, that, that's his. Go talk to him about that. And so they deliver him over to Herod. And Herod is excited. Of all of these, Herod is the one that is really uh, quite encouraged. And the real question here is, Jesus, will you show me some sign? Will you do some miracle? He, he wants Jesus just to do some sort of cheap parlor trick, sort of reminiscent of Moses before, the, uh, before Pharaoh as they're doing all these uh, various signs and, and uh, his, um, his people, his magicians can do them. Anyways, Herod here, he, he wants them to do some sign. Do, do something for me. Uh, tickle my ears a little bit, if you will. I want you to think of the, the irony of the whole situation. How do you think Jesus felt? Herod Antipas had had Jesus' best friend, if you will. A man who Jesus said there was no one greater than John the Baptist. Herod Antipas had taken his brother's wife, he was a serial adulterer, and he had John executed after he got wasted at a party one night and got tricked by his wife. Do you think Jesus has much time for Mr. Herod Antipas? No, he has none at all. And this is why Jesus responds this way. He, he responds in utter silence. Do something for me. And so they respond with vitriol and disrespect. Oh, you want to be a king? And so they dress him up in king's clothes and make fun of him and ridicule him and then send him back. And you see something interesting again, and I think this is Luke's point. Look at verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, you brought this man to me, one who's misleading the people, and after examining him, now this is a word for interrogate, 
perhaps even with force, interrogated Jesus. I've interrogated him, I've examined him, and I find this man, what? Not guilty. Not guilty. And more than that, look at verse 15, neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, he says, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I therefore punish and release him. In other words, he was, he was just going to warn Jesus. He's going to slap him around a little bit, whip him, lash him, just you know, tell him to knock it off, stop the you know, crazy talk, and just chill out. Just go back to Galilee and, and you know, be done with this whole thing. Get out of here. I'm washing my hands of it. Friend, this text, I believe, just shows us the endurance of Christ as an example to us. William Taylor, who is a uh, pastor at St. Helens, London, writes this, The courage, power, integrity, innocence, self-control, strength, and humility of Jesus as he approaches his death should move us to fresh adoration. He's majestic in his suffering. At the same time, the human wickedness depicted in these scenes should move us to a greater conviction of our base human condition. Just imagine the one who created these men takes their beatings, takes their ridicule, takes their laughter, their false accusations, their lies, And he does so with majesty, with grace. Satan was right. He could have called a legion of angels down to poof, they're gone. But he endured every mocking voice for you and for me. Jesus was tried, as we sing, by sinful men so that you and I could go free from condemnation that we rightly deserve. That if you and I were to be tried today before the tribunal of God, there would be no need for lies. Everything brought in the case against us would be true. I did that. Oh, yep, did that too. Yep, guilty of that. Jesus was innocent. And what we see transpire in the verses that follow is nothing short of, I believe, the most clear picture of the gospel in your Bible. The verdict is given. And what is the verdict? The innocent for the guilty. As the story unfolds, and Luke doesn't allude to this, but other gospel writers, so if you are having your Bible open and you'll notice there's no verse 17, don't, um, you know, have a stroke there in the pew. Uh, This was probably added, verse 17 was probably added, and so it's not original. But essentially, it alludes to what the other gospel writers make explicit, which was that during this time of the Passover, there was a prisoner release program going on in Israel. It was a way for the Romans to sort of make peace with the people they really despised. They, They were often trying to tamp down insurrections, um, rebellions. Obviously, they were an oppressive government, 
and they, uh, and they had high taxes, and so people got squirmish, and there would be uprisings, and so they would often try to, you know, tamp them down, the fires, with, with some wet blankets. And one of those was during religious seasons and festivals, the Romans would release prisoners, and of course, as a, as a measure of goodwill that, hey, I know we're an occupying power, but, you know, we're not that mean after all. And so, Pilate, in his genius wisdom, says, hey, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to propose that Jesus becomes the prisoner that's released, the, you know, the lamb that is saved, the one who got caught in the thicket and is delivered, and he's saved and delivered. And they will calm down, and this whole thing will be put to bed by supper time. But what happens in the unfolding narrative is that the people are so angry about Jesus that they have no space for a Jesus in their life that they demand that Barabbas is released and that Jesus is executed. Luke records that they kept insisting over and over and over again. And twice Luke records this in the narrative. In just a few verses, first, he says it first in verse 18. Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. That's what the people wanted. Verse 19, Luke adds this, A man who had been thrown into prison. Why? For an insurrection started in the city and for murder. To use a modern noun, he was a terrorist. He had caused an uprising and people died at his hands. He kills people. He is a murderer. Then he says it again there at the end of verse 25. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and for murder. Do you get the point that Luke's trying to make? A terrorist, an evil and wicked man, Barabbas, is released and the crowd is crying out for Jesus' execution. And Pilate is complicit in the whole thing. He's not innocent. In fact, uh, the other gospel writers make explicitly clear that he is not innocent, but that he is guilty. He knew the truth. He was innocent, he said. Three times, I find no guilt in this man. I find no guilt in this man. But he fell victim to mob justice. The crowds were crying out, crucify, crucify, and he acquiesced to him and condemned Jesus to death. Friend, do you see the, the gospel there? The one who deserved death, who sat in that Roman prison cell, knowing there was two other guys there we know of, they get executed that later that day. He sat there wondering how many more hours it would be until he died. 
for crimes that he had committed. Though he was like most prisoners, he was probably considered himself to be innocent. But of all the prisoners there, he knew he was guilty. He had taken the life of another man. He had caused an uprising in the city, which often would have cost other people's lives and livelihoods. Death was what he deserved. And death is what he stared down. And then they heard the chains coming down. They heard the keys rattling. And there he was. And they called for his name. Barabbas. Come here. I thought the execution was later today. I thought these guys were coming with me. I thought we were all going to die together. Why am I dying alone? What is happening here? No, 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 no. You see, you've been pardoned. That other fellow, Jesus, you know, the one they've been crying about all day, they're going to kill him. Wait a minute, that guy, he did nothing wrong. In fact, there was another prisoner back there that I was just talking to, and he told me as much that he had done nothing wrong to deserve death. The other fellow, he was railing at him, he was yelling and mocking him, but that other guy, he said he was innocent. I'm the guilty one. How is it that I get to go free? Friend, isn't there joy in knowing that you and I are Barabbas? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast held in chains. Then a light, the prison door swung open. I got up. And walked free. Friend, we see a picture here in our text of a cherished Protestant doctrine. And that is penal substitutionary atonement. That Jesus died the penalty that our sin rightly deserved in our place as a substitute. And that His death atoned for our sin. If you look at the word in English, at-tonement, at-one. Once we were set apart from God, now we are at one with God. Once we were at enmity with God, now we are united to God. Why? Because Christ died in your place. The innocent for the guilty. We deserve death. We deserve condemnation. We deserve hell. Brothers and sisters, we ought never to doubt God's love for us. We ought not ever to think that we are undeserving of God's wrath and punishment. No, your conscience, friend, bears witness to God's judgment over you. I know you try to sully your conscience. I know you do things to try to tamp it down. But friend, you are just as guilty as Barabbas. And so am I. We ought to also find that when we face injustice, the lies of others and the ridicules of those around us, we are no more like Jesus who faced injustice. The one who endured injustice for you. Friend, you should trust that he will make all things right. This is why, friends, the Apostle Paul will say to the church in Rome, 
Overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome by evil. For vengeance is is mine, says the Lord. We ought never to seek our own vengeance when we face injustice. What had been described, as we heard earlier, as the greatest miscarriage of justice in human history. An innocent man for the guilty. Oh friend, we ought to find ourselves in Barabbas this morning. Perhaps even becoming your favorite character in all the Bible. Aside from Jesus. Because he's you. And he's me. And the truth here this morning is that true freedom from sin comes through Christ's chains. He was bound that you might be set free. He was in prison that your prison cell might forever be swung open. And if you trust in Him, brothers and sisters, know this, that you will be set free. Friend, if you do not know Christ this morning, plead upon Him and you too will be free. You, you no longer need to be a slave to sin. For Christ was made a slave that you might be free and free indeed. Friend, His atoning work on Calvary's cross also brought forgiveness. Not only freedom from the from the chains of sin, but forgiveness has been won for you and for me. Your sin debt is paid. Nothing in my hand I cling. Simply to the cross I cling. This nothing. I have nothing. I didn't buy it. I didn't purchase it. The blood of Christ did. I'm free. Know that your sin debt is paid in full. Why question it? Why listen to the accusations of the evil one? You're a child of God. Brothers and sisters, it is not merely that our records were expunged. Our records have not been expunged. Our record got transferred to another prisoner in the prison. And we got to walk out free like we had done nothing for being locked up. We were death row inmates. But one inmate stood up and said, hey, I will die for all the other inmates who will believe in me and trust in me. Friend, you and I have been reconciled to God. He is no longer angry with you. You're a child of God because of what Christ endured in this text. What a warning to those and those of us this morning that so easily turn to sin. Look at the costliness of it. Look at the ridicule. Look at the ugliness of this whole text. Look in the words of John Owen, the sinfulness of sin. Look at it. True freedom and lasting forgiveness, friend, comes only through Jesus Christ. It does not come through the things of this world. It does not come through relationship, through friends. It does not come through the things that this world prizes, but only through Christ. Horatius Boner, a 19th century Scottish pastor and hymn writer, wrote this poem about this event, and I think it's helpful to conclude with it. Listen to Horatius' words. 
I see the crowd in Pilate's hall. Their furious cries I hear. Their shouts of crucify appall. Their curses fill my ear. In all that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one. And in that din of voices rude, I recognize my own. I see the scourges rend the flesh of God's beloved Son. As they smite, I feel afresh that I of them am one. Around the cross, the throng I see, the mock, the scoffers groan. Yet still my voice, it seems to be as if I mocked alone. Twas I that shed that sacred blood. I nailed him to that tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Yet not the less that blood availed to cleanse me from sin, and not the less that cross prevails to give me peace within. O friend, find yourself in Barabbas this morning, and you will find yourself a free and forgiven man and woman for God's glory and for our good. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, these things are too wonderful for our minds. Our souls are filled with joy and gladness that Christ ascended the steps in Pilate's hall. He endured the trial an utter sham. He was innocent. We were guilty. Oh, let us savor our Christ this morning and His finished work. Let us turn anew and afresh from our sin and believe upon Him. Let those of us this morning that are in the dungeon of sin, we're still awaiting trial. Let us cry out. Let us cry out for Jesus and His salvation. That is one for us through the cross and for our glory. Father, I pray that we would grow more and more in the days ahead to forsake our sin, to embrace Christ, and to know the gospel more. For your glory and our good in Christ's name we pray. Amen.